We're in a series, and we're going verse by verse through the letter to the Galatian church. It is not only one church, it's four or more churches, and they've got a problem. Their understanding of faith is being challenged. They came to trust in God's saving grace and the forgiveness of their sins as they were Gentiles by simply trusting God. Their faith was placed in His promise to forgive through the work of Christ. But now, by a group of false brothers, also known as Judaizers, those that would say, we believe in Jesus, but there's more to being saved than that, they're very, very troubled. And so Paul is writing a letter to them in Galatia to say that it is indeed grace alone by your trust or faith alone, in the work and achievement of Christ alone, that you are saved. And in this morning, in verse 8, where we read that this gospel, this scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, this gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham. So, Paul is now at a point in this letter that we're going to see where he presents to them a sermon. He presents to them an argument from Scripture. He presents to them the very evidence of Abraham's salvation as not only a model, but the design of our own salvation. Let us pray. Father, You preached a sermon a long time ago, thousands now of years ago, to Abraham. Would you preach that same sermon to us again today? By your design and by your promise to do so, speak, Heavenly Father, through the medium of the Holy Spirit to us, your sons and daughters today, who have come seeking you and your words for life, now and eternity. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. It was discovered in the recent year, a lost sonnet of Beethoven. They found it in a sketchbook of sonnets that were not complete. And so the University of Manchester Music Department took this sonata and they reconstructed it and then they performed it. They played it. And professor of music David Fanning said this at the performance. I sense that people were listening very intently And the reception for the first performance was extraordinary. This is a major find from just a small scrap of scribbling. This morning, the Apostle Paul comes to us and he says, there's a scrap, there's a a writing in the book of Genesis, the book of Moses, It's just a few verses. 
But when it's reconstructed and he presents it to the Galatian church, it is a wonderful and amazing tune. It's an amazing composition of not only how Abraham was deemed to be counted as clean and righteous and set apart in relationship for God forever, but also it sings of how the same is true for us. Now this morning, I'm only going to go through the first nine verses. So I'm going to, if you're looking at an outline, I'm going to cover about half of the outline. And then we'll pick up the remaining 10 uh, through 14 next week. But look at, look at verse 1, and I want you to see that Paul frames an argument. He frames his argument that we are saved solely by looking to God and accepting His promises without doing anything else. Not church attendance, not an active prayer life, certainly not church membership or our baptism saves us. The foundation, the bedrock, that scrap of the sonata that we can reconstruct is that we are saved by faith alone. And he gives two arguments. He gives an argument of the Holy Spirit as evidenced in the lives of the Galatians. And then he goes to the scriptures of Abraham. He gives the argument of scripture. Look at verse 1. He says three times here, he, he calls the, the Galatians, or twice he calls them foolish, and once he calls them bewitched. Oh, foolish Galatians. Uh, Eugene Peterson in the message says, Oh, crazy Galatians. And what he is talking about here is he's saying that they are spiritually stupid. The, the, the word means a lazy mind that has ceased to think, and the product is a lack of wisdom. So it's non-thinking that is now going on. So that they're not meditating, they're not studying, they're not learning their faith. They're not feeding their faith. My goal, my task, my commission as a minister of the gospel every Sunday morning, and I have other opportunities to preach and, or, or to teach as well, but it's the same task that was given to Peter by Jesus Christ. Feed my sheep. My goal this morning is to feed your faith. I'm not trying to prompt you to go out after the service and accomplish a great work so that God's favor will be upon you. What I'm trying to do is with the gospel remind you already that you have all of God's favor upon you. You are no longer a slave or a servant. You're a son and you're a daughter. I would speak of his love to you and I would feed and have you contemplate, meditate, ruminate, instruct your own heart about how this faith has come to you and how it works. I would feed your faith. That's my task. As well as other teachers, Two Rivers wants to feed your faith. Are you learning? May it never be said that we are foolish like the Galatians because we've grown lazy. We don't take opportunity 
to learn about God. J.I. Packer was recently interviewed because they celebrated the anniversary of over 45 years of his writing of the Christian classic book, Knowing God. And they interviewed him and they said, you know, you wrote a long time ago, so what would, what would you say to a millennial today? Why should they pick up this book, Knowing God, and read it? And he said this, I would tell them straight out that everyone is dependent. Everyone is dependent. We're dependent upon circumstances. We're dependent upon other people. We're dependent upon things in all sorts of ways. But most of all, we're dependent upon God. And he says, we need to know about God. Knowing God is essential. For we are dependent upon Him. And he used an illustration, a classic illustration from when he first wrote the book. And he said, if you were to take someone from the Amazon and put them down in the middle of Trafalgar Square and they didn't speak the language, they, <clears throat> they didn't know the culture, then they would be completely lost and perhaps even in a dangerous or cruel situation. And he said, when we disregard the study of God, we sentence ourselves to stumble through life blindfolded with no sense of direction, no understanding of our surroundings. Life doesn't make sense. The Bible is a big book, and it tells us a great deal about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you're going to get your thoughts rightly shaped, you've got to know this stuff at least in outline. I said last week that my goal was for us to be able to define justification to another person in an elevator talk in 60 seconds with clear language in lay terms explain how we came to be justified before God. This week, Paul is in this letter, he's saying, Oh foolish Galatians, you're not thinking. You're inconsistent. And because you're not feeding your faith with the knowledge of God, it's like you're being bewitched by others. And that term for bewitched is to mean uh, sorcery. It actually is a term for evil eye. He's saying, it's as if by your actions and your muddled thinking right now about how you came to be saved and how you will continue to grow in this faith, it's as if there's a demonic influence upon you. And such is the way with all cults. They will take the gospel. Many cults will acknowledge Jesus Christ. Many cults like Mormonism, oh, they will tell you about grace. But grace in Mormonism works this way. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then you get baptized, you join the church, you tithe, you attend all the classes, you attend every function that they have, you become a very, very, very good Mormon. And then one day you'll stand before God. And if you really, really tried hard, and you were really, really, really good, then grace is what He gives you to just get you over the top. But do you see how twisted that is? 
Can you imagine how that would create such a, a life of, of striving or trying harder or the guilt and the shame that I just can't do it? No. It's very demonic. And he's saying, if you continue to go down this path, it's a distortion of the gospel and it won't bring you this life of faith that, that the gospel is designed to bring. He says, Jesus Christ in their church was publicly portrayed. The word there is prographen or prograph. Just think graphic. Prographic. The Apostle Peter says over in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, as he's writing a letter, he said, He, that's Jesus Christ himself, bore our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The Apostle Paul elsewhere says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, We, our church, our fellowship, preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. John Calvin said, Let him who wants to discharge the ministry of the gospel aright learn not only to speak and declaim, but to also penetrate into the conscience so that men may see Christ crucified and that His blood may flow. When the church has such painters as these, she no longer needs wood and stone, that is, dead images. She no longer requires any pictures. One of the reasons that we celebrate communion every Sunday at the end of the message, it's the conclusion, is that you might have a visual display of Christ crucified for you. The Apostle Paul says here, these Galatians would not have been at Golgotha to see physically Christ crucified, but in his preaching, indeed in his teaching and in his letters and in his discipleship, they're always putting forward the achieving death of Jesus Christ rather than our having to die. He's always portraying him and saying, he took the curse, he took the lash, he took the nail, he took the ridicule, he took the crown of thorns, he took the spittle, he took the whip, he took everything in our place. And he's saying, how could you believe that there's something you've got to add to that? It's finished, he proclaimed on the cross, by what he had done. And now you're saying, I guess we need to add something to it. And you say, no, that's foolish. Think it through. In verse 2, he asked them a question. Now this is the second of six questions. And then he's going to give six cross-references of Scripture in this passage, uh, verses 1 through 14, which I'm not going to cover all of them this morning, but he says, let me put an argument to you. He said, did you come to faith by the Spirit or did you come to faith by the law? 
Was it the Spirit that gave you new birth? Or was it an obedient life that God then rewarded you with salvation? In John's Gospel, we have the Lord Jesus Christ speaking with Nicodemus at night, a teacher of the law. And he's speaking to him, I think with a bit of shock, saying, you're a teacher of the law and you don't know how salvation works? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, Jesus Christ made a promise. That promise was that He would die in our place. And then He would, at His ascension, go to the right hand of God. And there He would ever live to intercede for us. He is there now physically. But He said, I won't leave you as orphans because you're now sons and daughters. And the promise has always been Emmanuel. I will dwell with you. I will send the Holy Spirit. And we find in Acts 1, as Pentecost approaches, we find in Acts 1, not the disciples getting busy and doing mission trips or, or, or doing great things for God, hoping for Him to reward them with the Spirit, but following the instructions to wait. Wait for God's gift of the Holy Spirit. I don't ever want to assume that everyone on Sunday morning is a believer in Jesus Christ. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, please understand it's no more complicated than that and it's no more profound than this. That God promises to come to you if you simply invite by turning away from your formal loves and former pursuits and you turn to him and you say come to me i would receive you i would have you be my savior i would have you be my lord and he will come perhaps not dramatically but He will come to you. He has promised. You don't have to go and clean your act up. It's as simple as the thief on the cross could not come down from the cross. He simply said to the Lord Jesus Christ, remember me. And Jesus said, I will. And they were inseparable from that point on, on the other side of death. And He's reminding them this. And He says in verse 3, Are you so foolish? He's like trying to wake them up. Are you still not thinking? Think this through. Jesus Christ came to you in the Spirit. God Himself gave you Himself and He dwells with you in the Spirit. And that's all in grace. And you can't keep Him by simply doing stuff. We keep Him by our faith that looks to Him. In verse 3, He uses the word perfected, and that's the word for completion. And he's drifting now to sanctification, and and that's by how do we live. Once we've become a Christian, 
How do I become more and more a daughter of Christ or a son of Christ? What is, how do I become Christ-like? And when we confuse the two, salvation and sanctification, the beginning of my faith and then the growing in my faith, when we confuse the two, we can begin to actually go back. If we confuse the two by saying, well, I was saved by a work of grace, God alone saved me by, not, by nothing that I, done, I did. And then, yet, I become a Christian by doing all of these things, and God will therefore give me His favor and His blessings. When we confuse that, we begin to make a mockery of His beginning because we begin to say, look, I've got it. I... He began it, but I've got it. I'll take it from here. And God's saying, you really are not that strong. The same way you began, the same way you began is the same way you grow. The same way that your salvation began is the same way that your sanctification takes place. Listen to R.C. Sproul as he describes the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the special work of the Holy Spirit to make us saints. He consecrates us. The Holy Spirit fulfills the role of the sanctifier. To be sanctified is to be made holy. Who makes you holy? Oh, well, I make me holy. I get up early in the morning. I have my Bible devotions. I read. I pray. I make it. No, 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 no. No, no, that's works. The Holy Spirit is at work in us, initiating, prompting, leading, wooing, coaching, convicting. To be made holy is to be sanctified, and that is the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Sanctification is a process that begins the moment we become a Christian. And when does the process end? The process does not end until death, when the believer is made finally, fully, and forevermore righteous. Let me, let me give you a, a, a quick example or illustration. I've done this before, but imagine you are a condemned criminal standing before the judge, and your lawyer, your attorney, your advocate is Jesus Christ. And God looks to your lawyer and your lawyer says, I will take the punishment. I will die in his place. I will take his condemnation. And the judge looks at you and says, do you accept this? And you say, oh, yes. And he said, okay, then I am now going to pronounce you not condemned or not even let off. I'm going to pronounce you as righteous just as if you've never sinned. You're amazed. Totally, totally amazed. And you begin with, you know, joy to to dance out of the courtroom as you're dismissed. And as you're getting ready to walk through the door, the judge says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Do you believe what just happened? And he said, yes, yes, I believe. Well, that's faith. And then as you get ready to leave, you're thinking in your mind, and he reads your thoughts. You're thinking, well... I came in as a, as a really bad 
addict, addicted to my sin. And so now I've been forgiven of everything in the past. All right, so when I get ready to hit this street of the world, I need to stay on the straight and narrow. I need to work really hard to stay straight and clean. And the judge, being a mind reader, says, you won't last a day. Can't do it. But you see, leaving the courtroom, I've got a third member of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit's going to go with you. The Holy Spirit is your addiction counselor. Your Holy Spirit's going to be there first on the phone when you fall off the wagon. The Holy Spirit's going to be there to coach you, encourage you as you change your life. Because the Holy Spirit's at work empowering you to change your life. Let me give you another way. When you pray, when you sin, when when the flesh and the sin is beating you to death, you're doing it again. said you wouldn't, but you're doing it again. What's your response? Well, I repent. I repent before God and I say, I'm sorry. I say, I, I don't want to do this. Then what's your next step? I try harder. I discipline myself. I get a calendar. I'm, I'm never going to do this again. Maybe even tell another person. I want you to hold me accountable. I want you to ask me about this. I'm never going to do this again. The Apostle Paul would say, be very, very careful. Be very, very careful. He looks and he says, you began by the Spirit. Are you going to complete it and perfect this faith by the flesh? We began by the Spirit, where I like the Valley of Vision prayer that says, teach me to believe that if ever I would have any sin subdued, I must not only labor to overcome it, but I must invite Christ to abide in the place of it. And he must become to me more than vile lust had been, that his sweetness, power, life may be there. Thus I must seek a grace, a mercy, a favor from him contrary to sin, and must not claim it apart from him myself. In other words... As Steve Brown used to say, we cry out to Jesus not only for pardon, but for His power to subdue the sin. His power to change my heart. Not simply look to my own power, because there's a deficit there. In other words, Lord Jesus Christ, You come in to the place of where that sin is. Not simply me make a place for you to come in. You come into it where it is right now. The Apostle Paul goes on, and in verse 4 he says, Did you suffer so many things in vain? And the word there for suffer means to experience. These, these are Gentile believers. They formerly had a very sensual, very pagan lifestyle. And when they became believers, the Holy Spirit came upon them. The Holy Spirit came into their life. The Holy Spirit is the promised counselor, paraclete. They began to change. And not because they had to, but because they wanted to now. They didn't pray because you must pray standing this way with the tassel so long. It's more like, I get to talk to Jesus? Man, there's no barrier. I get to talk to God? 
Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Well, what about worship? Oh, you must go still, though you're a believer, you must still go to the temple and you must be circumcised. Wait a minute, I get to worship now? I'm not kept out simply in the court of Gentiles anymore? They would have faced a level of rejection by their old pagan friends. They would have gladly paid that price, not in order to appear righteous before God, but because he had changed their heart. Paul was recalling that experience, an experience of their first love. And he says, you know, remember, you had some experiences of suffering for this faith. What was that all about? Was it just a sham? Was it just an act? Or was it real? But it was faith. It was faith in action. And faith looks a lot more upon, at Two Rivers, it looks a lot more like people in love than people doing busy stuff. Verse 5, he says, it's God who supplies the Spirit to you. God's the springhead, He's the resource, and He's the one who has been working in your life. In fact, way back in Acts 15, at the Council of Jerusalem, The testimony is, look, I, Peter, saw it. I didn't want to go. These uncircumcised, rough Gentiles, so far from our Jewish faith, and yet they looked to the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. They put their faith in Him, and the Holy Spirit came down. They didn't eat right, they didn't dress right, they didn't worship right, they didn't do any of these things. But God still came. He came. He came to the worst of our society. All based on their faith. God worked miracles. Despite despite their works or lack there of the law. Um, One of the things that Wendy and I pray very, very often with our children is that I believe that my children are believers in Jesus Christ. But I don't believe my children walk with the Lord. Uh, Four children, I doubt very seriously if any of my four children are in church this morning. And we pray about that. But hear me, church. I believe I'll spend eternity with my children, though they don't walk in the Lord, because they're not saved by their walk with the Lord. They're saved solely by the scandalous grace of God. I don't share that to be dramatic. I share that to try to show you the scandal of this. But wait a minute. If they're not in church, if they're not living like a Christian... But if they would say, yeah, you're saved. You're saved by grace alone. Not one work. You can be a prayerless Christian. Now, that's not walking with the Lord. And your life is going to have, I mean, why would you not? But you can be a prayerless Christian. But if you're a Christian, it is by grace alone. It's not your prayer life that saves you. I, I know. Heretical. Shout me down. But it's in this book. That's what Paul's saying. Verse 5. 
Does he who supplied the Spirit to you and worked miracles among you do so because you deserve it by works of the law? You earned it and you're a good son or daughter or by hearing with faith. You simply heard and you believe. You take him at his word. I know. Verse 6. He shifts the argument now and he does something ingenious. You see, these Judaizers, they loved Moses, who wrote the book of Genesis, and they, he was the great lawgiver, and they loved Abraham, who was the, the great example of faith. And the Judaizers were going to Genesis 17 that talks about Abraham received the sign of his faith, circumcision, which would for us be baptism but Paul genius genius he goes to an earlier day he goes to Genesis 15 verse 7 that he quotes there saying Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness I can't take the time right now uh, to do this even though I had planned to do so I'll pick it up next week but in Genesis 15, in Genesis 15, you have Abraham who is standing outside. He is childless. And the Lord God has led him outside of his nomadic wanderings in, out of his tent. And he points to the heavens and he says, that's going to be how many offspring you have. And Abraham, uncircumcised, Abraham, a Chaldean, Abraham, childless, believed it. It was a promise. God had made a promise, and he said, I believe it. And God said, that is faith. That is what a man of faith looks like. You, you don't have sight. He, Abraham could not begin to tell you how he at his old age and childlessness would be able to have a child. Could not begin to tell you how he'd do this. And God said, that's faith. And because you've trusted me and you believe me, I'm going to count that as righteousness. Last week, we talked about the, the word imputation. Abraham was not righteous he wasn't a man full of faith. Oh man, there's so many weaknesses in his life. He wasn't a man who was righteous by his circumcision, Judaizers. He was an unrighteous man. But when God made a promise to him, he believed it. He trusted it. He put his weight on that promise. And God said, because you believe me, I'm now going to make a movement. I'm going to take righteousness, purity, cleanliness, a morally perfect record, I'm going to now count that into your bank account. Because you believe me, you don't deserve it, it's grace, but because you have accepted my promise of grace by faith, I am imputing to you. I'm counting, verse 6, counted to him as righteousness. And in verse 7, Paul when those Judaizers heard this letter, 
man, it must have knocked them out of their pews or their chairs. Paul says then, and here's what it, it reads literally, the ones of faith, these are the real sons of Abraham. He's saying, this day, and everyone as far as I know in this room is a Gentile, if you look in faith to Christ portrayed on the cross, dying in your place, you are a son of Abraham. We all, not just the children, could stand up and begin to sing, Father Abraham, I am one of them, and so are you. Let's just praise the Lord. There is no cultural difference. There is no, there is no religious difference. There's no, there'll be all of this diversity, but he's saying when it comes to faith, they are as much a child of Abraham as you and your circumcision and your genealogy and your law-keeping. They are by faith now children. How that must have encouraged their heart. That it wasn't based on their, their status or their ability to teach or their, their ability to do. It was just they are saved. There's an equivalency there. Even for us. Well, Paul goes on and he will conclude the argument in verse 9, when he says then, So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Abraham, Abraham was blessed in many ways. And the Jewish people would look to Abraham as an example. And they would say, you want to have a bunch of kids? You want to have a lot of property and servants? You want to be wealthy with cattle and, and sheepfolds? Then have faith. Have faith and obey. Paul comes along and he said, there was really only, out of all the blessings, there's really only one blessing that Abraham cherished. It wasn't even Isaac. It was his justification. Meaning, it was the day that he was counted as a righteous one in relationship to God. Gentile, two rivers, that blessing is yours. You're as rich as Abraham because as was true for Abraham is as true for us. The Lord comes to us and He says, when you look to me, and you put your weight on what Christ has accomplished for you, you're in. But wait a minute, you don't know how I struggle. You don't, man, my Christian life, I'm on again. I'm, I'm like a, a hot and cold water faucet. Sometimes I'm really, really good. Sometimes I'm really, really bad. Well, how did it begin? Well, it began with some tears and some snot falling on my knees and saying, Lord, if you can save a sinner, I qualify. And if you'll be my Savior, I'll take you now and forever. But oh, I've drifted. As you began, you're still in. And He is at work. He continues to be at work. And when you begin to think, when you begin to think about that, do you know what it does? 
It doesn't prompt us to try harder. It prompts us to surrender to that kind of grace and love more and more. I want to do those things because my heart has changed and I would follow Him. Let's pray.